Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 28th of September 2022. News. House prices may slump by as much as 15% as interest rates rise. This is an article by Martin Williams. House prices could plunge by as much as 15% amid fears of further interest rates continue to rise, leading economists have warned. Analysts have warned that higher interest rates, rising inflation and the risk of recession could lead to house prices falling by between 10% and 15%. It comes as it emerged that hundreds of mortgage deals have vanished from the market as a fall in the value of the value of the pound led to forecast of higher interest rates. Lenders, including Clydesdale Bank and the Scottish Building Society, have said they are pulling and tweaking deals. The pound plunged against the dollar on Monday after Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng pledged more tax cuts on top of Friday's mini-budget when he announced the biggest tax cuts for 50 years. The Bank of England said on Monday it would not hesitate to hike interest rates after the pound hit record lows. And sterling remains low, slumping as much as 1% to around $1.06 on Wednesday, while the dollar has hit a fresh 20-year high. That is only just above the last week's low of $1.03. Some experts think Bank of England base rates could rise from 2.25% to 6% next year as it battles against high inflation, currently at 10.1%. With rising base rates come higher home loan costs and an expected dip in demand for houses. Capital Economics and Credit Suisse have also estimated that an interest rate rise from its current level of 2.25% to 6% could see house prices plummet by between 10 and 15%. Credit Suisse's warning that house prices could easily collapse by 10 to 15% if borrowing costs continue to rise. Andrew Garthwaite at Credit Suisse said the 8% decline in sterling since August the 1st should add a further 1.3% to near-term inflation. On current swap rates, the average mortgage will be 6.3%. House prices could easily fall 10 to 15%. Andrew Wishart, senior property economist at Capital Economics, also warned the rise in market interest rates that has already happened will push up mortgage rates to at least 6% 
and reduce the size of loans that lenders can offer. The resulting drop in buying power makes a significant drop in house prices inevitable. Were bank rates to rise from 2.25% now to 6.1% in June 2023, as is currently priced in, quoted mortgage rates might rise from 3.6 PC last month to about 6.6 PC, a level last reached in 2008. At the current level of house prices, an increase in mortgage rates to 6.6 PC would cause the cost of repayments on a new mortgage to rise to their highest level since 1990. Ray Bulger, mortgage broker at John Carcall, has predicted a 10% fall in UK house prices next year. He said we can expect to see a significant fall in house prices, perhaps 10% next year. Whilst at the moment I don't think we're going to see many more forced sellers, it's certainly going to have an effect on people's ability to buy. He said the biggest issue for lenders was the uncertainty of knowing what the cost is going to be for the funds they need to buy to lend. According to Deutsche Bank, the UK's borrowing costs for 10-year government bonds or gilts have risen by the most in a five-day period since 1976, the year Britain went to the IMF for a bailout. Mr Bulger said, we've seen a huge rise in gilt yields over the last two or three days, an increase of over 1%, he said. That's the fundamental cost that lenders have to pay, or dictates the cost lenders have to pay to borrow money. And they just don't know where that's going to go, and it makes it very difficult to price their mortgages. Because people have gotten used to really low mortgage rates for the last 10 years, I think the consequences are actually going to be very significant. And Karen Noy, a mortgage expert at Quilter, said rates of 6% could prove disastrous for the property market as people won't be able to afford mortgage payments if they have overstretched themselves. This could cause a wave of properties to come to market just when demand is drying up. UK interest rates were increased to 2.25% last week, the seventh time in a row the Bank of England has raised rates in an attempt to get control over rising prices. Interest rates have been rising since last December as inflation has soared to its worst level in four decades. More than 200,000 Scots homeowners will have seen their mortgage payments rise by more than £1,000 a year in the space of those nine months of interest hikes. Worst hit will be the estimated 115,000 Scottish households on standard variable rate SVR mortgages or the 85,000 on tracker loans, which fluctuate with the Bank of England rate. More than 100,000 fixed-rate mortgage deals, which it is estimated are scheduled to end during 2022 in Scotland, will also be hit. There are concerns about affordability for first-time buyers trying to get on the housing ladder. According to analysis supported by analysts, Money Facts, the typical Scots householder with a standard variable rate, SVR mortgage, 
with £100,000 in debt remaining, will have seen their repayments soar by £1,060 a year since the base rate rises began in December last year. But this has heralded a slump in available mortgage products. On Friday, there were 3,961 residential mortgage products available and by Tuesday, this had shrunk further to 3,596 deals, according to data from Money Facts. That is 1,719 fewer than were available at the start of December 2021, which had 5,315, before the first of the series of Bank of England base rate increases. UK Finance Director of Mortgages, Charles Rowe, said some firms that had withdrawn their mortgage products in response to the pound tanking were putting them back on the market this morning. He said there are plenty of mortgages on offer in the market at the moment. This article is by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 28th of September 2022. From the Sports section, recorded by Amy. Kilmarnock appoint Russ Richardson as new head of recruitment as experienced scout reunites with Derek McInnes by Darren Johnson. Kilmarnock manager Derek McInnes admits he is delighted to have been reunited with talent spotter Russ Richardson following a shake-up of the backroom staff at Rugby Park. Richardson worked with McInnes at both Bristol City and Aberdeen and has made the move to Rugby Park from Liverpool. Greg Thompson is also back working with McInnes, a senior analyst having also been previously employed at Pitodry. Director Phyllis McLeish has assumed the role of managing director and will be supported by new general manager Greg McEwen, who has moved across from his position as head of marketing and commercial operations. McInnes says, I'm delighted that the club have supported me in addressing key positions within the football operations department. Having worked closely with Ross over a 10-year period, I know him as a very dependable member of staff who I'll rely on heavily. All of the additions will be of great benefit to the club and as an already very close-knit team, I'm sure will continue to become more effective as the season progresses. Managing Director McLeish said, As a club, we're always striving to strengthen both on and off the pitch, so it gives us great pleasure to welcome new members of the team who will improve multiple areas of our backroom activity. Alongside Billy Bowie and Kathy Jamieson, I look forward to working closely with our growing team as we continue to evolve operations and enhance our performance as an organisation. That article was by Darren Johnson. Recorded from the Herald on the 28th of September 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Scotland could still land grip of death for Euro 2024 qualifying despite landing pot two spot. By Darren Johnson. Scotland could still end up in a Euro 2024 qualifying group of death despite landing a place in pot two for the draw on a week on Sunday. In the worst case scenario, Steve Clark's could side could be placed in a section with three teams who are ranked above them in the current FIFA standings. All the pot one countries are listed above Scotland, while Sweden, 20, and Turkey, 42, who are in pot three and four respectively, are also potential opponents. Slovakia, who are only six places below Scotland, would be pot five team to avoid in a five-team group. The most favourable draw would see Scotland rank Hungary as a pot one team, then Armenia and Azerbaijan in Gibraltar. Seven of the groups will be made of five teams, with three containing six. 
the top two countries progressed to the finals in Germany. Potential Euro 2024 qualifying groups by FIFA rankings. Worst group FIFA ranking, Belgium number 2, Scotland 45, Sweden 20, Turkey 42, Slovakia 51, Andorra 152. Best group FIFA rankings, Hungary 37, Scotland 45, Armenia 92, Azerbaijan 128, Gibraltar 200, San Marino 211. That article was by Darren Johnson. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 28th of September 2022, from the Voices section, Agenda, Key Role for National Parks in Net Zero Journey, by Gordon Watson, Chief Executive of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park Authority. With Scotland's Climate Week underway and COP27 fast approaching, the need for urgent action on climate change is rightly back on top of the news agenda. As one of the First Nations to declare a global climate emergency in April 2019, Scotland set an ambitious target to become net zero by 2045. The critical role for national parks in that journey to net zero and to reverse the decline in nature was laid out in a joint statement with other protected landscape organisations around the world during COP26. This initiative, led by our convener James Stewart, helped secure a strong international commitment for many of the protected landscapes that make up 30% of the world's landmass to make tackling climate change and biodiversity loss their top priority. It also brought attention to the critical role many of our landscapes can play to become net absorbers of carbon while restoring nature. Here in Scotland's first national park, this is embedded in everything we do. We have committed to reach net zero as an organisation by 2030 and see this as an important step towards setting ambitions for the whole national park to become a net zero as a place. The fact is, the impacts of climate change are being seen and felt by those who live, work and visit here. Increased flooding and road closures due to landslide being the most obvious examples. However, the National Park is also an ideal carbon capture landscape and the perfect place to take forward the innovation and scale of investment required to make a real difference in tackling climate change and reversing biodiversity loss. Nature-based solutions such as peatland restoration and woodland expansion are important ways in which National Parks are playing their part. Around 36% 68,000 hectares of land is covered by peatland, but much of it is degraded, emitting carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So there's a big job to be done in restoring peatland so they soak up carbon and deliver other benefits, such as storing water and creating healthier habitats for nature. Additional resources made available for peatland restoration in recent years mean we've been able to ramp up this activity. Woodland expansion is also key giving us more trees and woodland soils, both of which trap and store carbon. We are working with land managers and partners such as Scottish forestry colleagues to make this happen. Many of the changes and solutions we are driving forward can also mitigate impacts on communities and businesses. Restored peatland soaks up rainfall, slowing down water runoff that causes flooding. Investing in sustainable transport and active travel benefits benefits people living working and visiting here, and through our planning processes, we can promote more sustainable, energy-efficient development. The challenge is significant, but with the investment and collaboration, we can restore and improve the natural resources we have in our national parks and across rural Scotland, for climate, for nature, 
and for communities impacted by climate change both here and across the world. And that agenda article was by Gordon Watson, who is Chief Executive of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park Authority. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 9th of September 2022, from the sports section, Steve Clark and his gifted young Scotland side can dare to dream after joining Europe's elite, by Matthew Lindsay. The seismic ramifications of Scotland's draw with Ukraine and Poland on Tuesday evening means it is now much for Steve Clark, his players and their supporters to look forward to in the seasons to come. The national team have been promoted to the A-League of the Nations League after topping Group B1 and will join international behemoths such as Belgium, Denmark, France, Italy, Portugal and Spain in the upper tier in two years' time. Before that, they have to qualify for the Euro 2024 finals in Germany, but their prospects of doing so have been improved significantly as a consequence of the result in Krakow. They will be in pot two when the draw for the qualifying stages of that competition is made in Frankfurt on Sunday week, and they have a playoff place to fall back on if things do not go according to plan. For the time being, though, Clark has more immediate concerns. The games are a way off, he said yesterday as he reflected on what was a tumultuous international break. My immediate thoughts are to catch up with some sleep. It's been a tough 10 days. Clark can dare to dream when he has recovered. He hugged his former Chelsea and Scotland teammate Pat Nevin in the bills of the Krakowia Stadium. The ex-winger was working as a co-commentator at the game for BBC Radio 5 Live. After his post-match press conference, and then spoke enthusiastically about securing a higher seeding. It is perhaps the most significant outcome of the successful Nations League campaign. The national side will now not have to face England, France or the Czech Republic and they might come up against Albania, Armenia or Montenegro. There are no easy games in international football and nothing can be taken for granted. Clark is acutely aware of that. His side needed a late, late goal to overcome the Faroe Islands away during their eight-game unbeaten run last season. But moving up a pot could prove to be a game-changer. Scotland have not been among the second seeds in qualifying since the draw for the 2010 World Cup was made way back in 2007. On that occasion, they failed to progress from a group which included the Netherlands and Norway. But two teams from each Euro 2024 section will go through. If John McGinn and his teammates can replicate their performances against Ukraine and the Republic of Ireland this month in qualifying, they will give whoever they come up against a game, even the top seeds, and might not need to worry about the playoffs. So how did Scotland go from the depths of despair in June to scale such giddy heights in September? The switch from a 3-4-2-1 formation to a 4-2-3-1 was transformational. The defence was solid and limited the number of scoring chances their opponents created. The midfield controlled games for long periods, and they created far more in the final third. Jack Hendry, Scott McKenna and Ryan Porteous, the uncapped Hibernian man who was unexpected selection ahead of Declan Gallagher and Stephen Kingsley, were all superb at centre-half. Aaron Hickey was a revelation at right-back after Nathan Patterson suffered his injury. Greg Taylor proved to be more than able deputy for Kieran Tierney at left-back. It is a given now that Craig Gordon will shine whenever he represents his country, but the 39-year-old made several vital saves and clipped two clean sheets. His manager admitted the lack of young goalkeepers coming through is a concern, 
However, the individual in possession of the number one jersey could still be turning up for his country when he's 50. Scott McTominay for the good central midfield partnership with Callum McGregor and ahead of them Stuart Armstrong, Ryan Christie, Ryan Fraser, McGinn, all contributed greatly. Scotland may not have an Erling Haaland, Harry Kane or Robert Lewandowski in attack, but Shea Adams and Lyndon Dyke showed once again they can be a handful. Clark did not have his problems to seek with injury and illness during the camp. He was missing no fewer than 16 players, Grant Hanley, McTominay, Patterson, Andy Robertson and Tierney among them, for the rematch with Ukraine this week. A sickness bug also swept through his squad. Those who came in executed his game plan to perfection and there was no significant drop in standards. The strength and depth that the manager now has in most outfield positions make him hopeful for the future. We've found another way to play, he said. We've found other players in the squad who can do very, very well for us. The squad is stronger. It means if we are going to places like the other night, when you're looking to get a result that takes us to the next step, then we know we have a team that can do it. The building blocks were actually there in the summer. We had to beat Armenia after the disappointment of the defeats to Duquesne and the Republic of Ireland in June. It was about taking six points from the lowest ranked team in the group and then you know you have the top two seeds in the space of a week. This is what we've had to learn and make sure we get better. Playing in the A-League of the Nations League will be tough. Both England and Wales were relegated this month after finishing bottom of their sections and they have both booked their places at the Qatar 2022 finals in November. However, Clark is looking forward to his charges pitting themselves against the best footballers on the planet and knows that doing so will improve them even further. I haven't looked at who is there yet or who we can get, he said. It's tough. It's certainly not going to be easy. You see Wales, they went up and they've come back again. But if you want to improve, you want to play against the better teams. We're going to be challenged six times in that tournament, that's for sure. But these players have come away from this tournament as better players, and they will come away from the next one even better again. The young guys will be getting more experience playing against top teams. Going up into the A-League at the same time as England were relegated was sweet for members of the Tartan army. They sang joyously about the old enemy's fate and during the Ukraine game on Tuesday night. But Clark is unconcerned about our near neighbours' woes. He has far more to occupy his thoughts once he gets a well-earned rest. I don't think we've got anything over England, he said. They weren't involved in this process. We'll just enjoy it for ourselves. And that article was by Matthew Lindsay. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 29th of September 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Terry Pratchett, Portrait of an Angry Old Fart. By Rosemary Goring, columnist. Terry Pratchett, A Life with Footnotes. Rob Wilkins, Doubleday, £25. By Rosemary Goring. I'm going to make Alzheimer's regret catching me, said Terry Pratchett. In a phrase that encapsulates his attitude to life, the news that the best-selling author had been struck by a rare form of the disease at the age of 59 made headlines around the world. From the moment of his diagnosis in 2007 until his death in 2015, Pratchett, while continuing to write as copiously as ever, became an ambassador for awareness of Alzheimer's. As he liked to point out, when you've got cancer, you're a battler against the disease. When you've got Alzheimer's, you're an old fart.
Pratchett's biographer Rob Wilkins was with him every step of this increasingly frustrating and distressing degenerative disease. As a young man, he was a devotee of Pratchett's wittily subversive fantasy novels. In 2000, while working for Colin Smythe Publishing, Pratchett's first publisher, he was dispatched to sort out the author's CD burner. The relationship blossomed from there. The increasingly overworked novelist had been contemplating hiring a PA, a lady from the village, but it was Rob who fitted the bill. His remit gradually expanded from making tea and fixing technical glitches to tidying up passages of novels and eventually typing at the speed of a stenographer while Pratchett dictated. To Discworld fans, this might sound like the dream job, but as Wilkins suggests, being employed by Pratchett was not all strawberries and cream. I was also fired many times over, although one quickly learned that Terry, being a writer, had an experimental interest in saying things to see what they sounded like, and if you adopted an experimental approach to yourself and simply turned up the next day, it would normally turn out that you hadn't been fired at all. Many made the error of mistaking the avuncular-looking Pratchett for a Father Christmas figure, but, as this intimate biography reveals, much of his creativity was driven by anger. This generated such a head of steam that, at his peak, he was writing as many as three books a year. Wilkins has many advantages over most biographers, having not only known his subject well, but taken down notes while he was alive for his projected memoir. That book's working title, A Life with Footnotes, has been redeployed here. The result, at times, is like a ventriloquist act, with Pratchett's voice and personality emerging loud and clear, even when not directly quoted. A discursive, conversational account of Pratchett's life and career, Wilkins's affectionate but verbose account begins in the hamlet of Forty Green, near the Chiltern Hills, which Pratchett described as a sort of lark rise to Beaconsfield's Candleford. Here young Terry, an only child, was raised in a house with no running water by his mechanic father and ambitious mother. The space race was a little way off, but already she was preparing to sling me into a higher orbit by my years if necessary. By the time they moved to the luxury of a council house with indoor loo in Beaconsfield, the outline of the adult Pratchett was already taking shape. He had a precocious understanding of astronomy and of how to work a radio, and by the age of 11 had discovered books. The gift of a copy of The Wind in the Willows opened his eyes to literature. This was the pivotal point, the coin drop moment, the minute at which the scales fall away, the machinery clocks into gear, and his life sets off at speed in a wholly new direction. Thereafter, he wanted to read absolutely everything. Age 12, he got himself a Saturday job shelving books in the local library, where in quiet moments he would devour copies of Punch. Despite this, Pratchett was not a success at school. Among several lingering resentments was the way he was treated by the head teacher with whom he had a running battle about keeping the Encyclopedia Britannica in the school library. Yet Pratchett was only 15 when his first story was published in Science Fantasy magazine, home to such luminaries as J.G. Ballard, Ray Bradbury and Mervyn Peake. With a clutch of O-levels, he chucked in school to become a cub reporter in the Bucks Free Press. Within weeks, he had found his natural home in the children's corner. As Wilkins writes, the apprentice journalist is already on his way to mastery of the mock heroic, cheekily loosening the nuts and bolts of conventional storytelling to see what laughs might follow. Pratchett's journalistic career was not distinguished. Possibly its lowest point came as a press officer for the Central Electricity Generating Board, southwestern region. When news broke of a gas leak at Hinkley Point Nuclear Power Station, he collapsed and was rushed to hospital. It was not a heart attack as first suspected, but a panic attack. Covering Pratchett's youthful and lifelong marriage to Lynn, with whom he had a daughter, Rhiannon, and the publication of his first novel, The Carpet People, Wilkins maintains the momentum, albeit in a cheerfully repetitive manner, as if humouring an audience hungry for the tiniest details of the great man's life. 
When Pratchett's career began to take off with The Colour of Magic, the first of the phenomenally successful Discworld series, Wilkins faces the problem of any biographer with a subject who spent most of his time either at his keyboard or on publicity tours. How to make interesting the matters of publishers' advances, deadlines, occasional rewrites and endless book signing. To his credit, Wilkins knows how to keep the story bubbling. Nor is he above settling scores, as when he takes a swipe at a crass and uninformed put-down by Tom Pollan and Alison Pearson in The Late Review, which merely confirmed Pratchett's disdain for the ignorance and pretensions of the literati. When, however, he won the Carnegie Medal in 2002 for the amazing Morris and his educated rodents, his biographer reflects it was hard to avoid the conclusion that, in a potentially troubling development, Terry had just been found guilty of literature. A devoted and self-deprecating Boswell to Pratchett's crotchety Johnson, Wilkins offers a generous portrait of a fizzingly imaginative workaholic. In a letter left for Wilkins to read after his death, Pratchett wrote, I think I was good, although I could have been better. Legions of his fans might argue with that. By Rosemary Goring. The Herald, Thursday the 29th of September 2022. News. Adam Tompkins. Inevitable Conservatives will lose next election. This article is by Jody Harrison. A former Tory MSP has said it is inevitable the Conservatives will lose the next general election following a week of economic turmoil after Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget last Friday. Professor Adam Tompkins, who was a Scottish Conservative MSP for the Glasgow region between 2016 and 2021, said the economic future of the UK would be in safer hands with Labour than with the Tories. Speaking to BBC Scotland's The Nine later that evening, the former MSP said it was an extraordinary thing for a Conservative to say. He added, that is an extraordinary thing to have to say, and I'm saying it because of what Quasi Quartang has done to the market in the last few days. It's perfectly clear the economic future of the UK would be in safer hands if Labour were in power than the Conservatives. He argued the government had lost control of the economy. In an article in Wednesday's Herald, the Glasgow University law professor endorsed the Labour Party. Later, he said the party looked like a government-in-waiting following its conference in Liverpool this week. Professor Tompkins added... The thing the Conservative Party exists to do is to hold office to secure the economic well-being of the United Kingdom. This feels very much to me a moment like 1992 or 2008, where the country turns on the government. It's absolutely clear what the next election result will be, and the Conservatives will lose it. They will deservedly lose it. The economic reality behind trussonomics is a disaster that is unfolding, the way in which the pound is being hammered. We can't blame Putin for this. We can't blame the Ukraine war. We can't blame Covid. It's insane. Every member of the government is signed up to these policies. This is a path they are committed to following. It's time for the Conservatives to be in opposition. Professor Tompkins said Labour winning the next election was inevitable, but the job would be very difficult, adding, the job will be to somehow pick up the pieces of an economy that has been battered by COVID and is an economy that is now being battered by seriously misguided decisions. 
that are coming from number 10 and number 11. This article is by Jodie Harrison. The Herald, the 30th September and the Voices section. Herald Diary, Recalling the Gordon Brown Blues by Lorne Jackson. Explosive remark. The UK's economic meltdown is beginning to resemble the Wicked Witch of the West after that naughty scamp Dorothy chucked a bucket of water over her head. Michael Gibson from Carnoustie says the powerless financial situation brings to mind a similar occasion when GBPLC tanked under the stewardship of Gordon Brown. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, as Brown was then grandly known, had promised to bring an bring an end to the unstable business cycle of boom and bust. One wag was later to heard remark, well, he certainly got rid of boom. Fearful flying. Momentous meltdown moments continued. Reader Peter Foster heard one Treasury spokesman say on TV, now's the time for cool heads. Says Peter, a statement like that is about as calming as the pilot of a jumbo jet suddenly coming down, coming on the intercom and saying to the passengers, Whatever you do, don't panic. Pregnant pause? Never. These are strange times, claims Ian Noble from Castares Village. I read last week that a woman in the UK gives birth to a baby every 4.5 seconds, he explains. Now we've got to find this woman. Fly guys. Some newspaper columns provide their readers with thrills, spills and chills aplenty. The die would, would never stoop to such simplistic and populist tricks of the trade. We have found a higher calling, which is to stun our followers into a reverie of ennui. How do we achieve this feat? Well, recently it's involved describing famous novels in the most underwhelming way possible. A task we triumphantly continue today, courtesy of reader Sharon Gilbertson, who suggests... A group of rambunctious schoolboys get involved in tropical island hijinks. This book is, of course, Lord of the Flies. Charge for Charge, a well-known aphorism, claims with great power comes great responsibility. Reader Eileen Boyle says this should be corrected to with great power comes great electricity bills. Going down, a while ago, Kate Dowling was in a restaurant with her boyfriend. They had been waiting with less and less patience for the main courses to arrive. Eventually, Kate glanced over the shoulder of a bow and said, At last, I think that's our dishes arriving with the dumb waiter. The bow, who was not especially au fait with restaurant culture, muttered reprovingly, Shh, I know there's been a bit of a delay, but that doesn't mean we should be rude about the staff. Tablet talk. A seething David Donson harumps. To whoever stole my antidepressant pills, I hope you're happy now. By Lord Jackson. The Herald, the 30th of September and the Voices section. Many budget poses a threat to our local communities and society as a whole. By Sarah Davidson. The UK government is betting on growth. Even if the Chancellor gets the economy moving, this wager risks leaving many communities and individuals behind. At Carnegie UK, we urge policymakers to value other objectives than just increasing GDP. We press the case for measures such as community cohesion, 
environmental impact, and local domestic accountability. To put it lightly, these do not appear to be driving our economic policy. While the broad direction of travel comes as no surprise, given the approach trailed by Liz Truss during the recent leadership campaign, the scale of the changes announced last week have shocked people across the political spectrum. The ensuing economic chaos shows that the markets have also little faith in the approach. By cutting personal and business taxes, rolling back regulation and capping energy bills, the new Chancellor says he can bring an end to a cycle of stagnation. But accepting the action on household utilities, the majority of commentators appear united in concern that plans won't work. Even worse, that future generations will be picking up the bill for tax cuts that don't allow governments of the future to invest. Here at Carnegie UK, we share this view. We also fear that interventions like the abolition of the highest income tax ban in England will mean that the proceeds of any growth are so unevenly disputed that they exacerbate inequality, revolting in plenty for some, but destitution for many. This outcome is not just bad for the well-being of individuals, it also threatens our local communities and society as a whole. At Carnegie UK, we are part of a wider movement that wants to see the development of a well-being economy geared to achieve good quality of life for all citizens now and in the future. This means recognising that the economy and the environment are interlinked and that just a transition is urgently needed to tackle two of the most critical issues facing us, the cost of living crisis and the climate emergency. It means recognising that our economy hasn't been working for many people and that ongoing action is required to correct this imbalance. It means acknowledging and acting on the duty we have to future generations, not saddling them with public debt burden that diminishes their prospects for well-being. Governments in Scotland and Wales are signed up to well-being frameworks that require them to demonstrate how they balance the needs of the economy with caring for the environment and each other. No such initiative exists at UK level as the misguided growth plan all too clearly demonstrates. As we wait to see the outcome of the new Prime Minister and the Chancellor's punt on growth, all those who share our vision for a more nuanced approach must consider how we come together and marshal our evidence about why this matters for people and planet. That was from Sarah Davison, the Chief, Chief Executive of Carnegie UK. The Herald, the 30th of September and the Voices section. section. Obituary, Alan Wilkins, Prey White and Teacher by Neil Cooper. Alan Wilkins, playwright and teacher, born July 6, 1969, died September 7, 2022. Alan Wilkins, who has died at aged 52, was a playwright and teacher whose boundless curiosity fed into several acclaimed works. He also led countless drama workshops in schools and prisons where his natural sense of empathy saw him enable those from less privileged backgrounds to thrive creatively. Much of Wilkins' writing explored facets of its own world. This was probably most apparent in The Nest, 2004, which looked at the hill-walking community gathered in a highland bothy. He later fed his experiences working as a barman in Western Ross Hotel into Offshore, 2008, 
produced by the Birds of Paradise Company. He wrote Can We Live With You, 2008, produced by Lungha Theatre Company in Edinburgh the same year. While these possessed a warmth and self-deprecating wit that Mark Wilkins' own personality, it was a play he wrote in between Carthage Must Be Destroyed, 2007, that was his masterpiece. Set in ancient Rome during the Third Punic War, Wilkins' drama looked at power, politics, and a decadent undercurrent behind both in what felt at the time like ferociously of the moment concerns. Carthage went on to be named as the best new play at the 2008 Critics Award for Theatre in Scotland and was revived in a new production by its original director, Lorne Campbell, at the Eustonoff Theatre in Bath the same year. A New York production was planned but fell victim to the financial crash. Given the current state of the world, Wilkins' defining work is crying out to be seen again. Alan Jeffrey Wilkins was born in Bedford, England, the second of four sons to Vera Nay Granger and Ernie Wilkins. He grew up in Blackhall, Edinburgh, where his father was head of chemistry at Stuart's Melville College, and where Wilkins was educated. His father was a hillwalker and obsessive Monroe bagger, fueling Wilkins' own passion by way of the school hillwalking club. Also at school, Wilkins co-founded a new magazine, the Political Register, with his professional sights initially set on journalism. His quick wit, masterful knowledge and deft way with an argument saw him also become a success with the School Debating Society, where he was often partnered with future playwright and artistic director of Edinburgh's Royal Lyceum Theatre, David Gregg. Wilkins' ability to think on his feet saw him becoming a debating champion, and he was commended for what the judges called his Churchillian style. One of his opponents was future Conservative MP Michael Grove, who was defeated by Wilkins on more than one occasion. At future events, it was clear to anyone who knew Wilkins that Grove was copying his moves, albeit without the same success. Wilkins joins Edinburgh Youth Theatre, while an early job at Ray McIntosh Music Shop fired a a lifelong love of jazz and classical music. He went on to study English and theatre studies at the University of Glasgow under the late Alastair Cameron. Contemporaries included playwright Nicola McCartney and director John Tiffany, and he was involved with university drama as well as the university magazine. His first move into acting came in the production of T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral as part of a cast that included Eugene Kelly of Glasgow band The Vaselines. After university, Wilkins acted in Barlini Prison Special Unit, worked as an extra on STV Soap Take the High Road, and taught English in Poznan, Poland. He also re- reconnected with Greg and appeared at the Arches venue in a double bill of work by Suspect Culture, a company set up by Greg with director Graham Etor. Wilkins went on to appear in Airport, 1996, and other Suspect Culture production. While touring Spain with the show, Wilkins decided to stay on teaching English in Madrid. Wilkins spent summers in Badacroc, then Westeros, where he worked as a hotel barman, living in a tiny caravan where he read his way through the Penguin Classics catalogue and listened to the Naxos Classical Music Library. 
His early play, Childish Things, 1998, was given a reading at the Transverse. Another, Cafeteria Restaurant, 1999, was read by drama students from RSAMD at the Tron in Glasgow. Wilkins led workshops as part of the Transverse School's Playwright Programme. Class Act, as well as other schemes in Pullman Young Offenders Centre. He responded best to tougher situations, and his work with five young carers inspired Greg's play for young people, The Monster in the Hall. Wilkins went on to teach drama in Inverkeeling High School. Despite increasing mobility issues, he continued writing, though a transverse commission followed that following Carthage must be destroyed, entitled The Obituarists, was never completed. Four Feet, 2012, about life after prison, appeared at Oren Moor in Glasgow as part of the venue's A play, a pie and a pint, eventually, season in co-production with Dundee Rep. His final produced work, My Loneliness is Killing Me, 2012, was a short piece based around issues of isolation and mental health and was presented as part of the Traverse's early morning fringe season, fringe season, dream plays, scenes from a play I'll never write. As his mobility issues worsened, Wilkins could no longer roam the hills he loved so much, and he reduced his teaching at Edinburgh's Royal High School to two days a week. Wilkins' death has robbed the world as one of the most curious talents, who left behind a body of work laced with humour and generosity, and humanity that reflected the spirit with which he filled his own life. He is survived by his mother Vera and his three brothers Andy, Roger and Richard. That was by Neil Cooper. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 30th of September 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Books. The legendary Ian McEwan is back with his 17th novel by Herald Magazine. Fiction. Lessons. Ian McEwan, Jonathan Cape, £20, ebook £9.99. In the spring of 1986, Roland Bain's wife vanishes and suspicion falls on the husband she left behind. Flashing back nearly three decades, 11-year-old Roland is sent from Libya to attend boarding school in England, where he starts taking piano lessons from a teacher whose interest in her prodigious student goes beyond the didactic. And so begins the dual narrative that traces the main character's tumultuous life from childhood through to the present day. Bookended by the Cuban Missile Crisis and the coronavirus pandemic, McEwen grapples with familiar themes, lost youth, lost love, the mishaps and misunderstandings that shape our lives, but on a grander scale. In nearly 500 pages, it's not a short book, and it feels a lot like an autobiography. Brackets, some aspects of it are loosely based in McEwen's life. Close brackets. Readers may find themselves rushing through some of the early chapters, but the beautiful prose and twisting plot, flitting between past and present, will soon have them engrossed. Magnificent and moving, Lessons is up there with McEwen's greatest works, 9 out of 10. All the Broken Places, John Boyne, Doubleday, £20, ebook £9.99. Are the sins of the father truly to be laid upon the children? 91-year-old Gretel Fernsby is living out her days in a comfortable apartment block in London when she encounters Henry, a child in trouble living in the flat below. She finds herself at a crossroads. To intervene will risk uncovering her darkest and most traumatic secrets, an act which will have repercussions. But more importantly, it will force her to face her own demons, the cruelties and decisions inflicted on her as a child, which she has lived with ever since. 
This is a really engaging novel about a terrible time in history, about grief, and about whether or not anyone can be held accountable for the deeds of people they love. Gretel's acts of kindness are interspersed with moments of rage and cruelty, demonstrating with Boyne's gentle touch that nothing, even the most extreme of acts, are as black and white as they seem. 9 out of 10. The Bullet That Missed, Richard Osman, Viking, £20, ebook £9.99. If you're late to the incredible hype surrounding Richard Osman's blockbuster series, The Thursday Murder Club, don't make the mistake of thinking you can just pick things up with the third instalment. Any newbie reading The Bullet That Missed will be left completely in the dark, as Osman makes no attempt to introduce the characters, he just dives straight into the action. But for fans of the series, it will be a welcome continuation of the storyline. We're back with Elizabeth, Joyce, Ron and Ibrahim, along with some of their old friends, as they once again find themselves embroiled in trouble. This time the gang are trying to solve a decades-old murder case, and Elizabeth's past come back to haunt her. While the bullet that missed doesn't really give readers anything new, Osman is onto a winning formula, and fans will be delighted by the familiar warmth of the characters and setting. 7 out of 10. Non-fiction. Nomad Century. How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. Gaia Vince. Alan Lane, £20. Ebook, £9.99. Amid a bleak prophecy of a planet rendered largely unlivable by climate change before the end of the century, Gaia Vince offers a radical outlook that insists a solution is not a lost cause. Nomad Century paints an apocalyptic vision of what she calls the four horsemen of the Anthropocene. Fire, heat, drought and flood, consuming huge swathes of the southern hemisphere and forcing hundreds of millions in a mass migration northwards. To facilitate even a fraction of that shift, Vince says we must completely reevaluate the rhetoric around migration and its rigid relationship with national identities and borders. She concludes not by doling blame, but by calling for real action now to combat the effects of our overheating world. By doing so in such an engaging and constructive manner, Vince leaves the reader with more than a few sparks of hope. 8 out of 10. Children's Book of the Week. Which Way to Anywhere by Cressida Cowell. Hodder Children's Books, £12.99, ebook £7.49. Magic and action are at the heart of Cressida Cowell's work, and her new adventure is no different. It's set when every living being on planet Earth is in danger from one of the most ruthless and imperious minds in the infinite galaxies. A scary start with a breathtaking chase, as K2O Hero tries to escape the terrifying beast on a far, far away planet, when only a day before all he'd had to worry about were maths tests and his fractious relationship with his step-siblings, and the book continues at a rattling pace. Kill creates marvellous worlds where witches ride vacuum cleaners instead of brooms, and robots who are bad at lying. Some of her invented words will be an interesting challenge to young readers, but the pace of the story will keep them going. 7 out of 10 by Herald Magazine The Herald's Monday the 3rd of October 2022 News Staggering wind farm switch-offs cost energy customers nearly £1 billion. This article is by Martin Williams. Payments to energy firms to switch off mainly Scottish wind farm turbines because they produce too much power have cost bill payers approaching £1 billion in just over five years and are expected to soar to £500 million a year. It has emerged that households who are seeing a doubling of energy bills since last winter are set to face further pain by the absurd constraint payment system, which is predicted to dole out record amounts in the next four years.
according to an analysis seen by the Herald on Sunday by National Grid ESO, the company responsible for keeping the lights on, all UK constraints costs, including gas, wind and coal generation, are predicted to grow from around £1 billion to an eye-watering £2.3 billion by 2026. It means that wind farm compensation payments could reach as much as £500 million in a year before energy infrastructure improvement brings the costs down. Because electricity cannot be stored and needs to be generated at the time of demand, compensation is given to energy firms when they have to reduce their output. With wind farms, it involves turning off turbines when the network is unable to cope with the power they produce. The payments are made by the National Grid ESO, but charged to consumers and added to energy bills. The payments over wind power in Scotland, which kicked in in 2010, come when what it generates cannot be exported to England due to insufficient grid infrastructure or because there isn't the demand. Official National Grid data examined by the Herald shows that the wind compensation payments have reached £900 million since 2017. The payments have risen to £395 million in the last two years, £126 million more than the two-year period from 2017. In 2012 and 2013, it is estimated constraint costs were at just £19 million. Industry insiders say that the cost of the inability to capitalise on wind will be even higher because of an absolutely preposterous double whammy where further payments have to be made to energy firms to use gas generators in the south to meet demand for energy when wind turbines in Scotland are switched off. Last year, the Scottish Government said that Scotland is home to 60% of UK's offshore wind capacity and 25% of Europe's wind resource. It is estimated that Scotland is home to just over half of the wind power generation in the UK. There is criticism that government is not doing enough to solve the problem by adequately funding a solution to the switch-offs involving the creation of energy storage technologies. The UK government has provided an initial £6.7 million to 24 projects across the UK to turbocharge the development of the storage technology with the aim of reducing the cost of meeting net zero. A further £61 million will then be awarded to several of the most promising projects, which means many will fall by the wayside. It is estimated that 80% of the UK wind energy curtailment in 2020 was on Scottish farms and the soaring compensation payments comes despite wind power in Scotland flagging in 2021. A Department for Business Energy and Industrial Strategy analysis showed renewable power generation for April to June 2021 alone fell 9.6% on the same period last year, driven by a 14% drop in wind generation 
because of lower average gusts, which were substantially below the 10-year averages. That resulted in a 36% rise in fossil fuel power generation over the same period to meet increased demand. It has emerged constraint payments, including wind, are forecast to rise from around £1 billion in 2021 to £2.5 billion per year by the mid-2020s, according to the National Grid, who also are predicting they will reduce once investment in new technology comes online. Yesterday, energy bills soared for around 1.5 million Scottish households after the government put a freeze on the regulator's off-gems price cap on average dual-fuel energy bills. It stepped in after an 80% increase in domestic gas and electricity bills was earmarked for the first half of winter. A typical annual bill will go up from £1,971 to £2,500, but will be further mitigated by cost-of-living payments. But prices will still be twice as high as last winter, and charities have said that will leave many struggling. Fair Energy Prices campaigner Kenny McCaskill, the MP for the East Lothian and Alaba Party deputy leader, who has conducted his own analysis of the constraint payments, described the huge constraint payments burdened to the taxpayer as the great energy switch-off absurdity. He said at a time when Scots are struggling to meet their energy bills, renewable energy in Scotland is being switched off. Perversely, energy suppliers are paid more for that than for producing energy. As offshore wind comes on stream, the great energy switch-off will only increase. The cost to the public purse will soon become billions. He said the solution was to store the energy, not switch it off, using long-duration energy storage, LDES. But he added the BEIS has failed to support such schemes. The modest sums required to develop this technology are dwarfed by the costs of curtailment. There are a range of schemes, including in East Lothian, that are good to go, for example, proposals to develop longer duration energy storage that require government investment so that we can develop prototype technology and then scale up from that. Other sites in Scotland, such as Kikensie and Torness, are ideally placed to take advantage of these opportunities and should be prioritised. It is time for both UK and Scottish governments to step up and to provide the action and the investment that is needed to make Scotland's Europe's renewable energy powerhouse. Nick Kitchen, Chief Executive of Cumulus Energy Storage, which is developing the storage and is hoping to introduce manufacturing to Scotland, said the new technology was crucial as Scotland had 25% of Europe's offshore wind and around 60% of the UK's onshore wind capacity. Energy storage provided means wind farms can continue to generate electricity and receive renewable energy certificates for this production that would otherwise be curtailed. 
He felt the UK government should put more money into projects to ensure saying a lot of the projects will fall by the wayside in its current schemes. There is a big opportunity to increase the budget to say £250 million instead of six projects they could have all 24. You could have gigafactories for batteries as they have for electric vehicles. He said there was a huge opportunity for Scotland in manufacturing the storage, creating hundreds of jobs. The solution is there. It just needs more money to commercialise it, he said. The modest sums required to develop this technology are dwarfed by the costs of curtailment. Another energy storage firm executive said there are going to be casualties with the BEIS projects. There is just not enough support and they are killing opportunities. Experts say there is a particular issue in Scotland, which has large amounts of wind power but limited capacity to export this through interconnectors to England and Wales. This bottleneck means that when large amounts of wind power are being generated in Scotland and demand is relatively low, there is limited scope to export this. A high-voltage submarine power cable between Scotland and England was supposed to help to cut the figure by allowing energy to be exported south of the border and keeping the turbines on more regularly, but there have been issues. In January 2020, Italian telecom systems firm Prismian, which manufactured cables for the £1.2 billion Western Link project, said that it had failed. It came back into operation on February the 7th, but it was the third failure in three years. After the outage on the Western Link, which connects Scottish wind farms, via Hunterston to England and Wales, the energy regulator Ofgem launched an investigation into National Grid and Glasgow-based Scottish Power, Iberdrola, over the subsea power cables delivery and operation. The joint project, which was billed at the time as the world's largest subsea interconnecting power cable, was originally due to be completed in late 2015 but electricity did not start flowing through until December 2017. It started at less than full capacity in 2017 after problems during construction. The line has suffered six faults since then, taking it out of action for months at a time. Last year, National Grid and Scottish Power Transmission agreed to pay a £158 million penalty package after a two-year delay. The delays meant it was difficult for renewable energy generators in Scotland to export green electricity to England and Wales from wind farms and led to higher costs to households as alternative sources of energy were used to plug the gap, according to Ofgem. Ofgem said £15 million of the fine was to be paid into its redress fund for vulnerable energy customers, which is run by the Energy Savings Trust. The remainder was to go towards reducing system charges, which was due to be passed on to consumers through lower electricity bills. 
The western link runs from Ayrshire to North Wales via a 239-mile subsea route to the Wirral Peninsula and a 20-mile stretch underground. It is designed to carry 2.2 gigawatts of electricity, enough to power 4 million homes. Prismian handed the project to National Grid and Scottish Power late last year and has booked €165 million in provisions for repair costs and contractual penalties. A UK government spokesperson said that grid constraints were a natural part of operating an efficient electricity system, but the necessary grid infrastructure improvements are being made to ensure the UK's homes can be powered by clean green energy. The spokesperson said that as onshore wind turbines are able to turn on and off with relative ease, wind generators are sometimes asked by National Grid to stop generating and it is only right that in times like this, onshore wind developers are paid for the revenue that they lose. The spokesperson added, our exposure to volatile global gas prices highlights the importance of our plan to generate more cheap, clean, renewable energy in the UK and reduce reliance on expensive fossil fuels. Gas is expensive and wind power is cheap. So we need more renewables to protect consumers. Constraint payments remain the most efficient option for National Grid to keep Britain's lights on and are only used when there is excess supply. The government is committed to accelerating improvements to the grid so more domestic, clean and affordable electricity can be supplied to homes and businesses. A Scottish government spokesperson said the cost of constraints provides an important signal for when to invest in our electricity infrastructure. It is clear that the threshold for significant new transmission infrastructure has been met and new transmission projects should be taken forward at the earliest opportunity to relieve constraints. Scotland has some of the most extensive renewable generation capabilities in Europe. It is vital that industry, government and the regulator work together to enable timely investments while ensuring that the regulatory levers held by the UK government drive down costs and increase benefits for customers and communities. This article is by Martin Williams. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 3rd of October 2022, from the sports section, the Monday kickoff, Fiorentina clash a chance for Hearts fans to remember Stefano Salvatore by James Morgan. Celtic and Rangers are not the only Scottish sides facing big European names this midweek. Fiorentina will arrive in Edinburgh for Thursday's Europa Conference League tie with Hearts. It is a fixture that will bring to mind a player who shone in the colours of both sides, the silky-haired midfielder Stefano Salvatore. The Italian died in October 2017 from cancer at the desperately young age of 49. Salvatore is remembered by Hearts as a key figure in the Scottish Cup winning team which beat Rangers to the trophy in 1998. A fierce battler on the pitch, he was a quiet, gentle soul off it. In Anthony Brown's book Reminiscing with Legends, which chronicles that 1998 triumph, we'll learn more about Salvatore's character during his time at Tangasso, 
information which brings both a smile to one's face and which may also leave you reaching for a handkerchief. In one anecdote, Neil McCann, the former heart swinger, details one inclement afternoon at Aberdeen in February 1997. We were wearing our yellow and black away kit. This is not one word of a lie. Stefano had a t-shirt, a top and a waterproof jacket under his strip. You could see the collar of the jacket sticking out of the collar of his strip. I think he was the only guy I ever played with who dried his hair after training. Most guys are straight out of the shower on the way home, but every day Stefano would dry his hair with a hairdryer. What a guy! What emerges in Brown's book is a picture of a man who loved hearts in Edinburgh, who returned often to see old friends and bought several properties in the city. It helps explain why, when he died of cancer five years ago, the Edinburgh International Conference Centre was packed to the rafters with heart fans wishing to pay their respects to him. It was a function at which Salvatore's wife Gillian spoke and which she struggled to get through her speech, not just because of the emotion of the occasion, but because of the reaction from those present. I couldn't finish a sentence without there being a chant of Salvatore. I got interrupted at the end of every sentence with applause and people singing his name. Rangers and Celtic Champions League opponents in a rut. Liverpool and Red Bull Leipzig represent formidable opponents on paper for the old firm in the Champions League week, but, as the old adage goes, football is not played on paper. Let's take the former first. Jurgen Klopp's side have been a shadow of the one that challenged on four fronts last season and almost scooped the quadruple. Whether it is a hangover they are suffering or simply an adverse reaction to losing one one prong of a formidable attacking trident in the shape of Sadio Mane, all does not appear right at Anfield. If this were the Rangers side that almost conquered Europe in the second half of last season, there might be reason to believe an upset might be on the cars on Merseyside tomorrow night, but Giovanni and Van Bronckhorst's side have looked pretty anemic themselves. At least they will go into tomorrow's encounter relatively fresh, following a canter over hearts, having played against 10 men for more than 50 minutes. Meanwhile, Celtic just might have the game plan to upset Red Bull Leipzig on Wednesday in Germany. The Bundesliga side have endured a woeful start to the season. Prior to Saturday's 4-0 victory over winless Bochum, a lack of goals and a poorest defence has left them mid-table, a position they remain in after just three wins in this campaign. Having already lost to Rangers in last season's Europa League playoff match, they are unlikely to be relishing the arrival of Ange Postelicoglu's Scottish champions. Tago Villola deserved better from Dolphins. For all the exposure that has been given to the dangers of the head injuries present to sports stars in later life, it seems some lessons remain unheeded. Tua Tago Viola was passed by the Miami Dolphins to play against the Cincinnati Bengals in the NFL five days after appearing to suffer a concussion in a match against the Buffalo Bills when he collapsed in the pitch after a tackle. The Dolphins claimed the quarterback sustained a back injury but others suspected differently. If Tua takes to the field tonight, it's a massive step back for hashtag concussion here in the NFL due to Chris Nowinski, a neuroscientist and founder of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, which campaigns for safety in head impact sports. If he has a second concussion that destroys his season of career, everyone involved will be sued and should lose their jobs, coaches included. We all saw it, even though they must know this isn't right. Novinsky's worst fears were realised, 
when Tiger Viola was slammed to the ground and could be seen clenching and spreading his fingers, a known symptom of brain trauma. I take no pleasure in being right, Novinsky tweeted five hours later. Pray for Tua, we saw this coming. It's a big week for Franco Smith. The season has started in ignominious circumstances for Glasgow Warriors, with defeat in Italy against Benito Treviso, followed up by another humiliating loss against Ospreys under their new South African head coach, Franco Smith. It is not just that Warriors have lost these games, they have done so in abject style, continuing a miserable run of away form in the United Rugby Championship that stretches back to January last year. What makes this season's away defeats all the more galling is that the Scotsman men were so impressive at home in victory over Cardiff last weekend, the first major test of the first major test of whether these are just early season teething troubles or something more malignant comes this week when Glasgow hosts Bulls on Saturday. The crack South African side were runners up in the URC last season and they have started this campaign in equally air bullish form with three wins from three matches. However, Edinburgh showed two weekends ago that the Bulls can be at it when they, they should really have won in South Africa, but for a fluffed late kick by Henry Immelman. As a one-time Bulls player and former Springbok, Smith knows South African rugby inside out, but that knowledge will count for little if his players repeat the mistakes of Saturday's dispiriting loss in Swansea. What's on TV? There will be another chance to gauge the process made by Josh Doig at Verona since his arrival from Hibernian in the summer, when his side host Ellie's and surprise package is Dunese in BBC Sport 1's Serie A game this evening. The Scotland Under-21 international has already made his mark with a goal in the 2-1 win over Sampdoria and an assist in the 1-1 draw with Empoli. There's no guarantee Doig will start this evening's encounter, having sat out the previous game against Fiorentina, which ended in a 2-0 defeat, but he recently revealed that Italy has made a big impression on him. It's all new, the city, the layout, the people, everything is new but I'm embracing it as much as I can, he said while in Scotland Under-21 duty. I've only been there for two or one or two months, but I already missed the city when I came home the other day. I was gutted to be away, as good as it was to be home. My girlfriend Molly has moved over. She's actually got into university there, so it's perfect. She's studying fashion at a fashion school. She's more clued up than me. She has advanced hires and is properly brainy. It sounds as if Doig is pretty switched on himself. 7. The number of away matches Glasgow Warriors have won in all competitions going back to August 2020. And that was today's Monday kickoff by James Morgan. The Herald, Tuesday the 4th of October 2022. News. Scottish Government Conversion Therapy Ban Report Published. This article is by Andrew Learmont. Children forced to undergo conversion therapy by their parents should be taken into care, a group set up by the Scottish Government has said. The recommendation to ministers is detailed in the final report of the Expert Advisory Group on Ending Conversion Practices, which was established last year shortly after Nicola Sturgeon committed to a ban by the end of 2023. In their report, the group define conversion practices as any treatment, practice or effort 
that aims to change, suppress and oblique or eliminate a person's sexual orientation, gender identity and or gender expression. They recommend that in any new law, the government adopt a definition which has a wide coverage of all practices, including known and unknown forms of conversion practices, to future-proof the legislation. They also say that the definition must also explicitly state that consent cannot be given to conversion practices. They warn that allowing for consent to conversion practices is a dangerous approach which will leave many people vulnerable to abuse. The group has said there should be no exceptions. Some politicians and campaigners have previously suggested legislation could have unintended consequences. Last year, the Edinburgh South West MP Joanna Cherry said conversion therapy was something that any right-thinking person must oppose. However, she warned against making it a criminal offence for therapists to try to help patients with gender dysphoria to feel comfortable in their birth sex. In their report, the advisory group say that affirmative support, healthcare provision and family ill or pastoral care which takes place in a supportive and affirmative environment and are led by the other person's autonomous decisions should not be classed as conversion practices in accordance with our definition as they do not seek to change, suppress or inhibit that person's sexual orientation or gender identity. The group also rejects criticism from evangelical organisations that a ban could lead to the unlawful restriction of existing freedoms, including freedoms of speech, religion and belief. They say that where expression creates the potential of significant harm to others, a prohibition of a practice is justified and necessary as a proportionate way of protecting the interests of the victims and does not unlawfully interfere with the human rights of the providers of conversion practices. The group says the criminalisation of conversion practices should not only include the carrying out of the practices themselves, but should also include offering, promoting, advertising or referring a person for the purpose of conversion practices. They also want to see charges brought against anyone who takes a person out of Scotland to be subject to conversion practices anywhere else in the world. The offence should also include those who aid, abet or otherwise facilitate someone being taken outside Scotland for conversion practices where this is done with knowledge of the intended principal offence, they add. The group also call for ministers to back legislation which would see any healthcare professional carrying out conversion therapy lose their professional licence. Faith leaders should also have their professional licence revoked while charities involved in the practice should have their states removed.
when it comes to parents and families, they say that if the perpetrator has parental or guardianship rights in relation to the victim, the legal consequences ought to include the modification or withdrawal of such rights. The group says their research has uncovered feelings of apprehension around reporting of conversion practices in ethnic minority communities. They say the majority of conversion practices happen within domestic settings in these communities, so there needs to be visible support that is intersectional and culturally competent, which understands the structures and governance in diverse faith institutions and the significance and potential danger of the abuse of honour and shame within communities. It is vital to understand the relationship between an overarching culture and environment of anti-LGBT plus sentiment within some communities. It is also important to understand individuals' desires to be accepted and to fit into societal norms where family, faith and community are integral parts of life and self-identity. These may be key factors as to why people voluntarily suppress their own identity or consent to conversion practices. Dr Rebecca Crowther, Policy Coordinator at Equality Network and member of the Expert Advisory Group, said, This work has been rigorous and tough, particularly for survivors. This report sets out a clear, well thought out, comprehensive, sensitive and powerful set of principles that could go all the way in ending conversion practices in Scotland. There's a lot of work to be done and now more than ever an undeniable need to get on with the bill drafting and finally put these awful practices to bed. Richie Edwards, a survivor of conversion practices and member of the expert advisory group, added, The first positive step made by the Scottish Government was including those of us with lived experience of this abhorrent practice, which sadly still takes place in Scotland. I have fully appreciated their willingness to put survivors at the heart of this process, this has been tough to revisit. The differences that these recommendations, including support measures, will make to lives across the country cannot be overestimated. If adopted, Scotland will become a safer place for all LGBTQ plus people. In their response, the Scottish Government said that many of the recommendations were complex and interact with a range of ministerial portfolios as well as bodies outside government. They say they will carefully analyse and reflect on them over the coming months with the same attention and care that the group put into making them. We want to ensure that all the measures that we take are deliverable and bring about real and lasting change to the lives of LGBT plus people in Scotland. This article is by Andrew Learmonth.
recorded from the Herald on the 4th of October 2022. From the sports section, recorded by Amy. Former Hull KR and Scotland forward Adam Walker dies at age of 31. By PA Sport. Hull KR have announced the death of former player Adam Walker at the age of 31. Walker, a prop forward who played with twin brother Jonathan for Scotland in the 2013 World Cup, made over 100 appearances for Rovers from 2013 to 2016 and was in the Salford team that reached the 2019 Grand Final. Walker also played for Wakefield, Huddersfield and St Helens before finishing his career at Lee in 2020. In a tweet, his old club said, Hull KR are saddened to learn of Adam Walker's passing. The club's thoughts are with his friends and family. That article was by PA Sport. The Herald, the 4th of October, and the, um, the Arts and Ends section. Glasgow University's journalism study warns trust eroding by Helen McArdle. Researchers have called for a new strategy to support and strengthen the media in Scotland. Academics at Glasgow University said Scotland should look to other territories, including Denmark and Quebec, which have invested heavily in their media sectors. Their report, Scotland's Sustainable Media Future, Challenges and Opportunities, is based on extensive interviews drawn from civic society, the media industry, government and regulatory regulatory bodies. Dr. Catherine Happer, director of the Glasgow University Media Group, said Scotland has historically had a huge appetite for news. Media contributes hugely to the economy and is essential to our national identity and supporting an informed electorate. There is no shortage of talent and energy. This new report is a way to open up a dialogue about ways in which the media might be supported to produce quality Scottish journalism and to facilitate a referendum discussion which does not have to rely on misinformation, half-truths and personality-led rhetoric. The report has been produced amid concerns over the financial viability of public interest journalism. The report also states that a large part of the media in the UK, including Scotland, have failed to adequately hold political decision-makers to account. The report says that there has been an erosion of trust in mainstream media, rooted in a much broader and deeper crisis of trust in public institutions. It notes that good quality journalism, and in particular investigative journalism, is very expensive and requires investment for the longer term. Adding, the ability to maintain such levels of long-term or long-form discursive journalism, not only in print, but also in the form of podcasts or data journalism, has been one of the features of the Danish and Quebecus approaches, meriting further investigation. The report found that yes, the supporting blogs sprung up ahead of the Scottish independence referendum, rapidly grew in size to attract tens of thousands of readers, despite their mixed quality and sometimes questionable journalistic integrity. It also describes a growing culture of political impunity at UK level. 
While it's said the Scottish Government has developed a reputation for intense media management and distrust of journalists. In June this year, the Scottish Government's Working Group recommended the creation of a Scottish Public Interest Journalism Institute, an independent body to support the resilience and sustainability of the sector through research, grant-making, training and promoting media literacy. That was by Helen McArdle. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.